welcome back to the McCann Dogs Podcast, Season 2, Episode 6? Yes. Okay, good. Yeah, Episode 6. <laughs> good guess, though. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I, I, I'm starting to lose track a little bit. Uh, it's so much fun that we're back. We're in a podcast studio. We're able to sit down and have these conversations. Um, it had been more than a year since we uh, had uh, done the podcast previously, and our last setup was a little, you know, yeah. it wasn't great. <laughs> this is much nicer. We're yeah, spoiled now. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and in fact, Speaking of podcasts, in today's episode, we're going to be talking about the road to Disney, making sense of distractions. Now, looking uh, at our YouTube channel, hearing from our students, this is a really uh, common challenge. How do you take what you're teaching your dog? What, how do you take these skills and apply them to the real world? How, how do you uh, go from you know, teaching your dog to sit or, or to walk at your side in, in your hallway to walking your dog at your side at Disney World, which maybe one day again yeah. will be a possibility. But um, Shannon, you've broken this down in, in a really interesting way. And actually, you've written an article uh, that you've published on our website. I'll include a link to the article in the show notes below if you'd like to read it as well. But um, we need to, t- to talk a little bit about how you uh, how you approach the idea uh, of, of taking your uh, creating more challenging distractions for your dog and, and taking your uh, dog training skills out in the real world. Yeah, absolutely. I always um I always use the analogy with my students that trying to train the dog to do something in the face of distractions is akin to trying to do ro- do calculus while riding a roller coaster. So hence the uh the Disney analogy. Probably the most exciting place on earth or at least that's close enough to their slogan. Oh boy. <laughs> This, now Mickey has entered the studio. He's joining our co- podcast today, our guest. This episode is not sponsored by uh, Disney. <laughs> <laughs> so basically that over-the-top environment where where everything is so exciting and the dog is just so overfaced by the distraction, that is the goal. But getting there takes some skill. It, it takes some time. It takes some practice. And it takes some energy that you've put into training the dog. So we can't just go out to Disney and expect our dog to be able to do calculus on that roller coaster. However, that's a really interesting concept, but I digress. However, <laughs> the fact of the matter is, is we all want dogs that can listen in the face of distraction yeah. Or in the quiet room. Yeah. So we need to get to the point. We need to bridge that gap. And that's what this episode is all about today. And we want these skills to work when we actually need them. Exactly. Absolutely. That's the, the most important time. The first uh, point that I see in your uh, in your article is that humans can conceptualize where dogs can't. And there's so often we hear people using very human language mm-hmm. for dog behavior. Uh, we, I think this is an important topic to, to, to lead off with. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I like to break this down for people as much as possible because I think in terms of the dog, not only do they not know that there's a more desirable behavior in that situation, they don't even lo- know they're supposed to be learning, right? Yeah. So we can conceptualize. If I go to school, if I set out to go to a math class, I've got my books, I've got my pencil, I've got my calculator, hopefully if I'm a good enough student, and I know that I'm there to learn. So I'm setting myself up for this optimal learning situation by paying attention, by focusing, by making sure I've slept well the night before, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that's what we do for ourselves when we know that we need to learn and we need to focus on things is we set ourselves up for really good learning. And, and then unfortunately with our dogs, we do the exact opposite. We go out in the real world and we let them be overfaced by distractions out on the street and we expect them to learn how to walk nicely with us in that situation. And again, that's where we get back to calculus on the roller coaster. It's just 
an impossibility. There's way too much energy. There's way too much excitement in terms of focusing on something that they don't even know they're supposed to be focusing on. Their natural instincts are telling them to focus on that exciting thing over there that they can't get to. And you end up with this situation where now you're working against each other because your dog doesn't really... I often used to uh, tell a story to my mother or joke around with my mother. She had a CKC Spaniel named Willie, and he was just a little guy and just a sweet guy. And they got along beautifully, despite that my mom wasn't really good at enforcing any rules. But it's okay. It worked great for their relationship. So Willie used to take my mom for walks around the neighborhood. And I always used to joke around with my mom and say, you know what? Willie would probably have a much nicer life if he didn't think his job was to pull you around the neighborhood. (laughs) Like, I want to get there, and there's this 100-pound woman dragging behind me. Well, I'm just going to have to dig in and pull her along with me to get to that thing that I want because there's resistance there. He missed his calling as a sled dog. Yeah, exactly. You know what? He would have led the running. What's the cool (laughs) runnings movie? He would have been great in that. Yeah. So basically, I always used to think that um, poor Willie would think that that was his responsibility. That was his job in this situation. Dogs can't, they can't conceptualize like we do. And we need to set them up for that optimal learning situation. We need to create a scene where there's nothing competing for their attention so that we can train the concepts that we want to train. And then from there we can build. But the first first thing that we need to do is make sure that our dogs are set up for that optimal learning situation. They're not distracted by the dog down the street or the exciting thing in the other yard. They're focused on us because there's nothing else that's really exciting to compete with that idea. The other thing you often talk about is uh, that, uh, was it training mode? Mm-hmm. Training mode doesn't exist. It's this makes me think a little <laughs> bit about that and the fact that um, you can you you always want to be ready for some training. If you if you have a dog that you're working on some behavior skill, whatever, um, that you're you know inserting training throughout the course of your day, so that your dog doesn't see you put on your bait pouch and get your training leash out uh, or training piece of equipment and start using it. Yeah, absolutely. And what's really important with any skill that you're teaching your dog is that the first thing you do is you make it valuable for the dog to pay attention and listen to that skill. So in order to do that, we need to have their focus. We need to be able to imprint that skill and create an association that's pleasant with responding to their name, for example. You know, if you start teaching that, in a park where they're focused on so many other things that there's no way they can even hear you, they're never going to learn that that's a valuable thing to listen to. But if you first take them out of that distracting situation and start teaching them that when they hear their name, wonderful things happen, you can then start to slowly add in the challenges and the distractions. And you can keep teaching them that despite that one small distraction, it's really worthwhile to listen to you because you have amazing things to reward them with. And to put them in a position where they're likely to make those the right choices and, and they're likely to have a successful training session. You talk about using something or, or putting them in an environment that's similar to a white room. Yeah, you bet. So nothing to compete whatsoever with what you're trying to teach. And that gives your dog – that has your dog sitting at the desk – pen and paper in hand, notes at the ready, you know, that's the situation where they're going to be able to pay attention to what you're teaching. And they're going to be able to start to identify some of the skills that you're trying to teach them. I um, I see uh, comments that come through on our YouTube channel. And um, one of our recent videos, I don't even remember which one it was, but someone mentioned that, you know, I, I live in a, in a city setting. Um, how am I supposed to find a, a place that's completely that has no distractions? And it, I immediately remembered times when we would go be doing a show uh, in 
downtown Toronto, if you're familiar with the area. Downtown Toronto is a very busy place. But we'd be sh- doing a show at like a main intersection in downtown Toronto. And it was great because we could bring young dogs in training and go find a spot, yeah. find somewhere that was just enough grass. It doesn't even need to be grass. Just enough space so that the dog could be successful. When you talk about a white room, you're not literally talking about, I don't want anyone to run out and go buy white paint. <laughs> And, and new furniture, you know, you're talking about an area where the dog isn't, you're, you're not competing with the level of distraction around you. Yeah, absolutely. So basically something that is not novel for the dog, not that exciting for the dog. And to be honest, I usually start this stuff in my house. Yeah. So by the time we get to, you know, the small spot in Toronto where we're looking for a quiet area, our dogs have already had a ton of repetition in even quieter environments than that. So the white room in my house, I would basically creates. For myself, I usually use my kitchen or sometimes I'll use my bathroom because it's a little bit of a smaller space and I can sort of contain things a little bit better. If I'm starting retrieves, for example, I usually will use my bathroom because there's nowhere else to go. An empty hallway is is a great example that I can think of as well because there's there's nothing else. Yeah, exactly. Close all your doors and the dogs don't really have much option. So the obvious option is coming back to you, especially if you're nice and close, and then you get to let them know that that choice is so amazing that it ends up with a big party as a reward, sometimes food, etc. Like all of that value being built is what is going to help you when you go out in the real world and the distractions are something present for the dog. It's that history of reinforcement. It's the dog knowing that when I do this, great things happen and creating that habitual behavior then becomes what the dog does natural. The history of reinforcement is such an important thing uh, to be teaching to our showing to our dogs. It's got to be something that we're always mindful of when we start to increase the level of distraction or we're starting to make a skill a little bit more challenging. But the number of times you need to work through something to practice something and uh, is so is vitally important and and you mentioned in your article the number of reps will surprise you and I think that's the case for a lot of dog owners. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so important to get in enough repetition that your dog is fluid at the behavior before you start to build on that. Um Basically, what I do is I let the dog dictate. So if I know that he's gotten to the point where, for example, if I'm working on a response to name, there's nothing else in the room, I can, from a couple of feet behind him, if he's looking over in the corner for some reason, I can say his name and he'll turn on a dime in order to get the reward that I've got for him. I know that that dog is ready to now have a little bit of a challenge. So uh, it it can be hard to find a balance because we don't want to stagnate at one level for too long because then, of course, when we do bring in novel stimuli, it ends up being overwhelming for the dog because all of a sudden we went from zero to this other exciting thing. But we also don't want to pile so much on that our dogs are overfaced. So I like to use the word systematic when I'm talking about adding distractions. And before I change my environment, I will actually up the distractions in the environment that I'm training in. Mm -hmm. So as an example, that white room, rather than continuing to just let it be an empty room, I might get a little container of food and toss it off in the corner there. My dog's going to know it's there. He's not going to be able to get to it, though. That's the secret. I need to make sure that I don't ever let him get to the reward that I don't want him to find value in. I want him to learn that those rewards, those options are off limits whenever I am interacting with them. So I will have a leash on. I'll make sure that he can't get all the way to the food bag, but it's something that might grab his attention. 
And then from there, I'm going to practice the response to name again. I'm going to make sure that the rewards coming are very high value. I'm going to mix them up as yeah. well so yeah. that my puppy keeps guessing. That's a big thing. It's sort of like pulling up your chair to the uh, slot machine versus going to the bank machine, right? If we go to the slot machine, there's that excitement and anticipation of what might be coming next versus the bank machine, which, you know, the only exciting thing is if you suddenly have more money than you than you did. And which is sadly never the it. case. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's face it, that's probably not going to happen. So we want that element of surprise. So my, if my puppy turns, I might pull out a tug toy and have a play. I might just call a playtime and have a little little romp and, and fun session with him. I might um, run away from him so he gets to chase me. I might throw a toy between my legs so that he gets an instant sort of um, gratification of that toy as soon as he turns around and he can chase it through my legs. Then I can turn and we can have a little play. Or, of course, I might feed several times if it was a really good response. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to add more distractions. So once he says, yeah, I can handle that friggin' that food in the corner is a piece of cake. I can handle that. No problem. Now I'm going to add maybe a toy or I'm going to add another bit of food or something else that's going to be enticing to my dog. And it's really dependent on your dog what distractions you use. It's got to be something that that dog finds enticing. So, for example, with Reggie, Reggie, I would put uh, food as a distraction. I would put at like a level 25 for him. That is a tough, tough distraction for him because he's my walking stomach dog, whereas Ned is much more reasonable about food. He loves food, but he's not going to break down walls to get a tiny little crumb of cheese like Reggie would. There would be no hesitation with Reggie. So I'm going to use those distraction factors to my advantage. I'm going to make sure that with Ned, eventually I'm working up to the point where he can turn off a tennis ball because that is one of his highest value rewards. But I'm also going to make sure that I have a tennis ball to reward him with a lot of the time so that he knows, you know what, you leave that, but great things happen when you do. It's never a wasted choice and you're never being deprived of anything. You're always going to get something better. The idea that um, what gets measured gets improved is uh, is the case in, in when you're talking about this kind of training. Um, I'm also thinking a little bit when you're talking about, you know, what's that level of distraction? What, what's the uh, reward uh, that my dog really finds valuable? The thing that you get uh, listening to podcasts like this and hearing from uh, from a dog trainer's perspective is that you start to learn that when I recognize my dog loves something, I should write it down, yeah. make a note of it, somehow uh, you know, uh, record the fact that my dog chose a tennis ball over all of the other four toys on the ground. They actually left uh, food for this thing. And you can now know that, number one, this might, be, this might not be the distraction that you start with when you begin training a skill exercise, but it could definitely be the reward for a job well done. Absolutely. And if I was struggling with a, an exercise, for example, if I was struggling with a response to name, that would be a great way to proof things out. I Basically taking that white room, adding a distraction that's not that exciting and having something that's amazing in response is going to be a great way of building value for my dog turning on their name. I wanted to make a point about what you just said. You said, uh, write it down. And I think this is a really important thing to do for so many things that happen in your dog's life. I always have like a scratch pad type of journal that I run along with every dog. Nowadays, it's it's electronic. It's on my phone, of course, because right. who actually writes anything anymore? But uh, I always have a running list of things that I've noticed about my dog because over time, you can, you can make comparisons. You can draw parallels between things. And a lot of the times, those will answer questions for you in terms of your plans heading forward or even something obscure. Last night uh, on our Zoom calls, 
with uh, our online training students, we were talking about a sudden change in one of the dog's behaviors. And basically, the dog went from being really cooperative, really sweet, really eager to work to being disengaged for about a week. And then after that week was up, the dog was back to being normal. Well, it just happens to be around the end of teething time with that puppy. And I said to the student, you know what, it's likely a response, a pain response from the dog for that week, they probably weren't feeling very well. So you saw that disengagement. I said, write that down, because it is really good to know what kind of pain response your dog is going to offer because in the future when you note that that dog has disengaged for some reason and it seems odd well maybe it's time for a trip to the vet yeah make note of those things so important that was an aside (laughs) no i think it was a really good point it also speaks to some of the um the conversations that we have in our online training program and now we're going to get to the latter something that you uh talk about when we're on that road to Disneyland with our dogs in just a minute. But, um, you know, the reason we're able to sit here and chat with you, chat to you guys, uh, and the reason that Shannon and I can sit across from one another and make bad jokes uh, uh, while being recorded <laughs> is because of uh, our online training programs. And specifically, uh, I want, we got a message from Barbara from who's in our life skills program, and I wanted to read it uh, really quickly. And Barbara says, I've run large companies and I'm a marketer at heart and trying to stay up with digital engagement strategies. uh, And then I experienced the McCann dog training. I was telling my husband, you've got the formula right. Not just how-to videos, but Zoom calls, daily Q&A, personal coaching, etc. Billy and I are Puppy Essentials graduates and now in life skills. The experience has been amazing. Foundational build. This is my second Border Collie and I'm learning so much. Thank you for putting us in the center of your formula. The impact is huge. I always get asked how I know how to train. I always get asked how I know how to train my pup. I tell everyone about you. Thank you from Billy and I. This uh, is a virtual moder- model that could work for kids at school, etc. Keep rocking it. So, so I'm going to nice. drop a link in the description below to our life skills program. Uh, if you have a dog over five months, that program is right for you. And if uh, you have a dog under five months, we have a puppy essentials program as well. So check out the show notes below. And thank you, Barbara, for the really nice message. Um, let's talk about, uh, I guess we've talked a little bit about distraction levels mm-hmm. when it comes uh, to the road to Disney. Now we need to, uh, talk about the idea of the ladder. And I like, you know, I am a very, uh, I think I'm very, I try to be tactical and calculated as I increase the challenge. I, I, again, we've been talking a little bit about recording our successes and our challenges and identifying, uh, what our dog loves and maybe what they're less interested in. How do you apply the ladder? to getting to uh, that ultimately distracting environment and still have your dog listen reliably. Yeah, you bet. This is how we need to break down our distractions. So we never want to go from that white room all the way to Disney and expect that our dogs are going to have a fair shot at learning or that they're even going to pick up on the skills that we want them to learn. And then the frustration sets in. And of course, we end up with a dog that basically just never leaves the backyard because they're too difficult to handle. So bridging that gap, the ladder is a great way to bridge that gap. Think about the bottom rung being that white room where nothing is in it and the top rung is Disney. The top rung is the most distracting environment your dog is ever going to be in and need to listen to, listen in. And 
each rung of the ladder needs to be a different set of criteria. And you can set your own criteria. You know, your your lives will be different than other people's lives with their dogs. We're all, we all have our unique situations. So you might live on a farm where your dog doesn't ever see a lot of things that they would see in the city. They might only see, you know, one car every 10 minutes, et cetera. So being socialized and being able to listen around traffic is probably not going to be your top priority. But being able to come from a distance, if you live on 20 acres, is probably going to be a really big priority for you. So think about the things that you need to work on. There's there's certainly different things in dog training that you'll want to incorporate into your training, regardless of whether you're going to use them or not. Things that build emotional control, things that build relationship, you know, there's a bigger purpose for them than just that particular skill in a lot of cases. But when it comes to the particular skills that are going to be important to you, if you're living on a farm, you probably won't be walking your dog on leash all that often. So you don't need to spend all that time working on loose lead walking, but you do need to spend a lot of time teaching your dog to come when they're called because they might be off sniffing in a bush or they might catch wind of a deer or something like that to start to chase. But we can't start with the deer right right off the bat. We've got to control the situation enough that you can take the step from the bottom rung of the ladder in the house to now you're working out in the front yard or working out in the backyard as an example, and then adding distractions to that environment. Rung three on the ladder might be getting out to the backfield where there's swamp and and potentially deer and critters and frogs and all sorts of interesting things. You know, basically just a systematic way of stepping up your distractions to the point where your dog can it can handle them. They're basically learning through success. We talk a lot about the three Ds, distance, distraction, and duration. Now, when we talk, when you're mentioning the latter, uh, I'd imagine you're talking about one of those things at a time, because maybe the you're working on your recall, for example, uh, maybe the distance is uh, the first one that you try, and then you add a little distraction, and that's the next ladder. But what I'm not going to do is go for distance, and then distance and distraction, etc. Yeah, uh, you know, being very careful not to overface the dog, because you know we're going to work through some of that stuff, but that's in the proofing. You know, we need to teach some foundation first. Absolutely, and what basically what you've just described is stacking things. So. That's always something you have to consider as well. If I am thinking about distractions as an example, stacking my distractions, there might be a really really distracting smell. There might be a really distracting sight. There might be really distracting noises. And I need to be very conscious of those things. So as I'm evaluating a new environment to work in, I want to make sure that I take notice of some of those things. You know, if there's water off to the side, for example, with Ned, that is going to really factor into my training plans because Ned loves all things water. That would be his number one thing. If you've, if you've listened to the Funny, podcast. being a toller. Yeah, exactly. But if you've listened to the podcast, you've heard me talk about using water to my advantage to train Ned and proof out his ability to listen around water. So it's really important for me in an environment to note if there's water in the environment. If there's bush off to the side, that's going to add smelling distractions. He's an intact male, so he's always thinking through his nose. So I need to make sure that I'm aware of those things. Not that I'm avoiding those things. I need to train up to the level of those things, but I don't want to be stuck in the situation where I've overfaced him and now he's not learning. I'm frustrated. I start calling him stubborn. We give up on the whole thing. 
It's just not the way to go. Yeah. And, and, you know, as you climb this ladder, it doesn't mean that you're going to remain in that same position. I'm thinking about, uh, you know, the 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 really rural setting where we talked about someone who may lives on a farm. Maybe they only need the recall. That's the one skill that they're really uh, focused on, on uh, whatever, keeping up. Um, and they haven't used it in three months. And they had a young dog in training and every day or every other day they were working on it. You know, these are the kinds of things that you want to go back to, you know, yeah. back to the second rung if you were at the fifth rung. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And on that note, like, training is a lifetime thing. You know, just like with us, if we don't keep working on our skills, they will fade. We will lose the ability to have certain skills if we're not practicing them. And it's so important with our dogs, too, that every once in a while we dust off the training equipment, even with, you know, 13-year-old Reggie. I'll practice things. Right now, we're actually practicing a lot of hand signals because he is now completely deaf, which has been a gradual process. And I've been working on, you know, sharpening up his signals all along to make sure that I can still enjoy life with him and he can still enjoy life as well. Of course, he has to be on leash now being deaf, but... Uh, and maybe that's another podcast topic, you know? Maybe that's something yeah. that we can talk about is some of the, the, the aging, the symptoms of aging and how you, you can actually train for some of these things. Or yeah. if you recognize that there's uh, some kind of issue that you can give your dog a new skill uh, that that replaces whatever the verbal was, if in the example of uh, your dog being deaf, because this is something that I'm working on a little bit right now with uh, Mac and Deacon, you know, really still, as you mentioned, training is a lifetime thing. Deacon's yeah. almost 17 years old. That's and I'll amazing. Still, yeah. And she, I mean, she's relatively healthy considering her age and I'll still work, I'll still reward her for a uh, great, uh, response to name. Now I'm yep. not too far away from her and I will have her online because her vision's going a little bit. But when I get a great turn, a motivated turn, I'm going to reward those kinds of things. Um, Old dogs are so special. Oh, I know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, but, but, you know, this is, this is how you're going to have that dog that you can take from home and go to the cottage and get the same response. You know, maybe you go over to your friend's house and you can show off how obedient your dog is. The amount of times that students, online students or, or in class have mentioned like, oh, my friends are just so amazed at how he'll listen to me and their dog's, you know, running around in circles barking at them or, you know, whatever the situation is. Uh, but this is this is when you understand that training is something that you can just insert into your every day. Absolutely. And you have some of the, you're thinking in the way of the ladder and you're able to sort of scale the challenge. Uh, this is why the dog gets up motivated, why the dog reliably listens. Yeah. And it's fun these days to yeah. train dogs. Yeah. You know, it used to be a situation where there really wasn't the tools that we, we didn't have the tools that we have now. So training would consist of going out into those locations where it was busy and basically just making the dog do it. Yeah. And a lot of the times using unpleasant methods to do so. And we've yeah. come so far and we've learned so much. And the McCann method has always, I mean, way back when Deb and Marty started McCann Professional Dog Trainers, it was because nobody was willing to use food in dog training and they knew that there was a better way to do things. You know, we, we should definitely have them on one time because, you know, I spent a lot of time with Marty and Deb and in hearing some of the um, stories from back in the day when they started their own dog training uh, business, when they left the uh, the obedience club that they were with because they wanted to use food. Yes. And how food now, I mean, 
lots and lots of people are using food to train their dogs, but the, the insight that they had uh, is really amazing. And that is all, very nearly 40 years ago. It's amazing. Th- 39 years ago that, that McCann Dogs was started. Yeah. Uh, but some really interesting stories. But, you know, I think we can recognize that the more motivated the dog is to listen, the more likely they're, to, they're going to do that regardless of the environment. Absolutely. And then the great thing is watching our students light up when their dogs get it right. And the joy in the relationship that's built. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. And with my own dogs, every time I have a new puppy and they start to come along and I start to see these skills develop and I just, I'm so excited for them. And I'm so excited for me and the learning that we've done together. It's remarkable. You know, um, we were talking a little bit earlier about knowing when to make things harder, knowing when your dog is ready. And uh, I was thinking about uh, Euchre in our household and other dogs that I've owned and trained as well. Uh, When I started to see them turn faster, Mm -hmm. when I started to see them sit fast, thing that, you know, the very uh, things that I was very acutely aware of were like the snappier turns or the faster recalls or the better sits. And uh, that's when you know you can up the challenge. That's mm-hmm. next. Okay. Well, this is working really great. Now let's take a step up on the, uh, go up the next rung on the ladder and make it a little bit more challenging. If you're, if you're sort of listening to this thinking like, well, what's that? How do I know? How do I know when to go on to the next rung? That might be it for you. Maybe mm-hmm. your dog is, uh, you know, lies down in an enthusiastic way that they hadn't done before. Maybe that you, you, I would be over the moon excited to, in that situation yeah. and I'd let them know that they made a great choice, but I'm also the next time, maybe I can make it a little bit more challenging. Yeah. And that is a sign that your dog is showing confidence in that skill, which is wonderful. We always say speed comes with confidence. People always ask us, yeah, my dog will do it, but they're really slow with it. And that's because it's still a new skill and they're still figuring it out and their wheels are still turning. So when you start to see speed, you can recognize that as confidence, that they are understanding what the job is. They're getting that little endorphin rush for being right. They're enjoying the process. And then you can build a challenge in from there. Well, Shannon, I think you've given lots of great tips and uh, helps people on the road to Disneyland (laughs) in those distracting environments. I want to thank you for joining me here in the podcast today. And I want to thank you, those of you at home for listening. If this is your first time here on our podcast, make sure you hit that subscribe button or follow button. We're publishing new podcasts every week to help you have a well-behaved four-legged family member. And uh, on that note, I'm Ken. I'm Shannon. Happy trading. (laughs) Bye for now, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the McCann Dogs podcast. And if you'd like some more training resources, be sure to check us out on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook at McCann Dogs. And if you'd like to train with us online, be sure to check out the show notes below for our My Dog Can online training program, where we know in just a few weeks, your dog will become a well-behaved family member. Until then, happy training.